everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Dave Beers, who wrote the book Immunity for Murder, the Veronica Taft story. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell us about Veronica Taft. Yeah, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty amazing story. Uh, not because I wrote it, but because of what happened. Uh, Veronica was, uh, at the time, she was a 23-year-old uh, single mom. She had four small children, all under the age of five. She lived kind of on a poverty-level income, and but she supplemented her public assistance with, uh, by working full-time at minimum wage. At the time, she was uh, working a night shift at a local high school from 11 p.m. until 7 a.m. And uh, her, her story is kind of, uh, her personal story is, is a, she led a tough life. Uh, she had four children. Two of them were fathered by uh, a man who, who became abusive to her, and she had to distance herself from him. And then she met another man, and the same thing happened. They had two more children. And then he was abusive, and she had to distance herself from him. And, and she, she lost her children for a short time because Child Protective Services got involved. And then, uh, but she finally, uh, uh, she moved out of state briefly, then she came back and, and found a little apartment on Fayette Street in the city of Binghamton. Uh, Binghamton, for those who uh, don't know, it's a, just a small city in upstate New York in uh, kind of the South Central region, uh, a couple hundred miles up from New York City. And uh, so she found an apartment there. And uh, then in the summer of uh, 2010, uh, she met another boyfriend named Charles Pratt. They all called him Chucky. He was from the Bronx. Um, And they kind of hit it off and started a relationship. They weren't living together, but they, they had an intimate relationship. And she started, uh, she's, you know, he was good with the kids. So she asked him if he would babysit uh, for the kids while she was at work. And uh, so he did. He agreed to do that. And, and for about six or eight weeks, it, it, it went along pretty well. Uh, you know, he would babysit the kids at night. But for the most part, they were sleeping. So it really wasn't too difficult. And uh, but then. Uh, on the night of December 30th, 2010, uh, you know, tragedy struck. Um, and if you want, I, I can go into what, what happened. Yeah, 
Go ahead. Okay. So, um, you know, Veronica went to work right on time. A coworker picked her up. She went to work uh, about 11 o'clock. And Chucky was there with the kids. His 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 brother was there with him for for a while, and and uh, he fed the kids. Uh, the kids would ordinarily Veronica would keep the kids on her schedule, uh, so they step late, uh, and then uh, hopefully sleep in a little bit in the morning, and she could get a little sleep when she got home. Uh, so they were still up when when she left, but they were in the room watching movies, and. Uh, so Chucky was in charge of uh, feeding them and, and putting them to bed. And when she got to work, you know, about 20 minutes later, she called to check on them, make sure they'd been fed, make sure they were ready for bed or in bed. And he assured her that they were. And then she worked uh, the rest of the night. Well, she comes home the next morning, about 7.15, and uh, Chucky meets her at the door. And... Ordinarily, she would go and check on the kids, but he, he assured her that the kids were fine and that she was tired and she needed to rest. So he recommended she just lay down and get some sleep. So she took him up on that and, and went in and, and lay down and go to sleep. And then uh, fast forwarding a little bit to about 1030, uh, she, she wakes up and she hears the girls in their room. Uh, waking up, and, and, and ordinarily it was Chucky's job to to get him up and get breakfast around while she stayed in bed for a while. So she asked him, you know, why aren't you getting him up? So he goes in, goes to the ch children's bedroom, which is in the back of the apartment, the opposite end of hers, and uh, he comes back and he says that uh, Lyric, her two-year-old, isn't breathing and he's cold, he's blue, he's not responding. And she, and she, you know, basically she's, you know, goes hysterical. You know, what do you mean he's not breathing? Go get him. So he, he goes back and uh, he picks up Lyric, brings him to his mother. And, uh, you know, she's kind of in a panic. You know, she, she tries to slap his back and try to wake him up. But he's cold and he's blue colored and, or purple colored and, and not breathing. So she she uh, yells at him to call 911. And, but then... Uh, grabs the phone herself and makes the call. It, it's pretty hysterical. And uh, and then with the phone in hand, she runs down into the street, down onto the street level and goes running out into the street screaming, uh, you know, call the police and, you know, does anybody know CPR? And uh, now neighbor uh, responded with her, went upstairs and uh, uh, ran to Lyric and, and started CPR. and. Uh, Within within a matter of minutes, the uh, ambulance was there, and they they ran upstairs and took over the the life saving efforts on Lyric, but he, he wasn't doing well. And the lead in, the lead EMT uh, just kind of grabbed them and up in his arms and ran him downstairs into the ambulance and, and rushed him to the hospital. But he was already starting; to, he was cold, but his core was still warm. Um, so they were they were at the hospital within a matter of minutes, and, and, and Veronica went with them in the ambulance, and uh, they took him right into the ER. But but by the time he got there, uh, his temperature had dropped more than twelve degrees uh, to a critically low uh, eighty six degrees Fahrenheit, and he had no no pulse, no respiration, no blood pressure. But the staff worked on him pretty feverishly. Uh, 
they took off his clothes and put warm contacts on him and pumped a warm saline solution into his stomach and, and you know, tried everything they could to, to uh, revive him. Uh, but uh, it was unsuccessful. They worked, they worked on it for about an hour. And then finally they had to make the call and, uh, and uh, he was dead. And, and Veronica was in the waiting room with a couple of police officers, you know, asking some preliminary questions. And then as soon as she found out that he was gone, uh, you know, she was in shock, obviously. And uh, but then within a matter of minutes, uh, they transported her back to the police station for, for an interview. And, and prior to that, uh, Chucky uh, had been picked up from the scene and he was taken to the police station as well. So they were they were both uh, you know, Chucky got there about an hour before she did. And, and the police were trying to interview him, and he was being really combative, uh, asked for a lawyer right away, uh, really kind of bouncing off the walls. And uh, and then Veronica came came in, and, and they interviewed her. So that's well, kind of focused a, on her. Yeah, well, well, they, they did. They weren't focusing on her initially. Um, you know, she was being very cooperative. They were being pretty. Uh, pretty decent with her during her first interview, uh, you know, just asking her what happened. And then she explained the whole story, how she'd been at work. And, and just it's the same story I just explained. And uh, so they, they talked to her for, oh, uh, more than more than two hours, maybe closer to four hours. And uh, at times leaving her alone in the room and she was, you know, talking out loud, uh, you know, wondering what happened to her son. and. Uh, it was it was pretty uh, pretty emotional, and then uh, they uh, somebody's knocking on my door. Uh, the uh, so they they interviewed her that day, and then they, they let her go. Uh, and the same thing with with Pratt; they let him go, and uh, they continued their investigation. And then uh, the the next day, uh, there was an autopsy, and. Uh, it was determined that, that it was a homicide and that he had died from uh, exsanguination, you know, bleeding internally and no external bleeding. And his, uh, his liver was uh, torn and detached from the spine and he had a major head injury. Uh, and the doctor said that either, either injury would have been fatal, but he felt that the, uh, uh, the, the lacerated liver was probably the cause and, and they probably lived for about an hour after he was injured because of the amount of swelling to the brain. So they, they, uh, they brought Veronica back in on January 1st of 2011. They'd asked Chucky to come back, but he refused. And the first part of her second interview went pretty well. It was just kind of a recap of the first interview. But then, and then they took a written statement from her and then they left and came back in and, and everything changed. They, they started uh, inferring that, that she had done something or knew, or knew what had happened. <laughs> she ended up getting angry with them, uh, you know, and, you know, questioning them why, you know, and, and she insisted, you know, look, once you find out the time of death, you'll know it wasn't me. And, uh, and she even offered to take a polygraph and, and they didn't do it. Uh, which I found rather strange. Uh, so when she left there that day, you know, they, they, they leaned on her pretty heavy. So she knew 
that the tides had turned and she was the suspect. Now, I'm uh, just wondering, you know, was it evident um, that he was injured from the start or was it internal and they couldn't even tell what was going on? Initially? No, it was it, it was very evident just just from looking at him. In fact, they uh, they sent one of their investigators to the hospital to take pictures uh, of the injuries. I mean, he had a he had a big bruise on his chest. Uh, he had uh, uh, gouge marks in his neck that looked looked like they were made from fingernails. Um, he had a, a what looked like a burn uh, on his uh, one of his ears. Uh, it, it, it was pretty obvious that he'd been beaten rather badly. It, it, it didn't appear as though it was an accident. So, so in terms of her reaction, obviously she was hysterical, but I mean, was she pointing the finger at anyone or did she not know or what was going on with her? No, she, no, she had no clue what had happened. And uh, she didn't want to believe that, that, that Chucky had anything to do with it. She was actually defending him you know, telling them how good he was with the kids and, and didn't want to believe that he had done anything. Uh, and, and she she just didn't know what happened. She was she was assuming all along that that he may have fallen out of bed uh, because the kids, the kids, uh, three of the kids uh, slept in a bunk bed, uh, two of them on the bottom and one on top. And they used to take turns as to who slept on top. And she wasn't sure where, where her son Lyric was sleeping that night. Uh, and so she was kind of assuming all along that he had been, uh, he had fallen out and, and, been, and injured himself that way. But during, but during her, uh, her second interview, they actually broke out numerous photographs of, of Lyric's injuries and, and laid them out in front of her, even though she had asked not to see any pictures. And, uh, and she was just uh, blown away by, by what she saw. And, you know, she just kind of freaked out. But, but as soon as she saw the pictures herself, uh, she knew it was no accident. What goes wrong with the prosecution that she ends up getting convicted by a jury in all of this? That, that's a tough one. I, 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 I still don't understand why they uh, turned their focus on her. Part of it uh, uh, was, um, I think they were looking for a motive. And, and they couldn't find any motive for Chucky to have done this. Uh, but there were other people that they talked to who were, uh, who were friends or, or used to be friends with Veronica who, who came forward and, and claimed that uh, uh, she had done all these things with her kids in the past. And, and, uh, and, and that's why Child Protective Services got involved. Um, and they were claiming that, you know, she would, beat the kids all the time. She was a, a crack smoking horror. She'd prostitute herself. She was cooking crack in the bathtub. She was a drug dealer and all, all kinds of stuff. And uh, of course, CPS, every time they got called, they, they investigated, they did the right thing. And they went to her house, checked on the kids. I mean, this was, there, there was numerous occasions where this happened. And, uh, and every time they did it, they, they wrote up their reports and never once did they ever find anything wrong with the kids. There was no evidence of bruising, injuries, neglect, malnutrition, 
nothing like that. And they even, uh, at the same time, they all, they, they did on-the-spot drug tests of Veronica, and, and never once uh, did she test positive. So all of these all of these alleged things that happened were, were never substantiated by by the authorities. But yet these same people, you know, once they found out that Lyric had died, now, now they come to the police and, and they're and they're uh, renewing their allegations uh, about Veronica. And, and, the, and the police apparently just bought into it and, and figured that that's the motive. You know, she she was disciplining Lyric and it, and it got out of hand. That, that was their theory. And and what did the jury see that, that caused them to convict? The injuries. Uh, you know, when when these uh, the, the prosecution started with uh, calling in these these witnesses who, who were making all of these claims uh, about things that uh, Veronica had done. Uh, and, and unfortunately, uh, the defense wasn't allowed to bring in uh, the unfounded reports that were written by CPS due to a judicial ruling. And, and, and that was a, a big blow to the defense because we had no way of challenging uh, those accusations. So the jury was left to believe that these things were true. And then um, uh, the other thing, right after they testified, they brought in the medical examiner and he testified about uh, the cause of death. And then of course, they, they brought in the pictures uh, of Lyric. And uh, you know, I, I sat right at the defense table with Veronica and her attorney. And uh, you know, when they put those pictures on the big screen and, and you kind of glance over and look at the jury, you you know what they're thinking, and I, and I think from that point on, uh, they were convinced that uh, that she had done this. And I guess I should ask how you got involved and at what point. Um, Veronica. Well, the interesting thing was uh, this happened like between Christmas and New Year's, between 2010 and 2011, and uh, they didn't arrest Veronica until September. Uh, so it was it was a long drawn out uh, investigation, but that they 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 never really did anything to eliminate the the boyfriend, um, and they actually ended up using him to testify against her in in the trial. But the, the, the other interesting thing uh, that I, I really like to mention is that when um, when when the boyfriend was interviewed that first morning. Um, during his interview, which was videotaped, and, and I have that, um, he, he, right, right near the end of the interview, he, he'd asked for a cigarette. So the police bring him a cigarette. And, and as he's reaching for the cigarette, the, the, the detective notices that uh, his knuckles are bleeding on both hands. And uh, <laughs> so when they asked him about that, he said, yeah, I was frustrated about what happened to Lyric. So, so I punched the wall. And, and he had done that, um, and, and Veronica had actually seen him do that. Uh, but the, the interesting thing about that is that later on, about a week after this happened, uh, the diaper that Lyric was wearing uh, was examined by an evidence technician, and it had specks of blood on it, on the outside of the diaper. Now, Lyric, as you recall, did not have any external injuries. So 
there was no reason to believe that that blood belonged to him. And Veronica didn't have any injuries. <laughs> and so, so, but the bizarre thing was- uh, They never tested the blood? They never, they never tested it. Wow. No, in fact, the evidence technician just put it back in the evidence locker. I mean, I mean she looked at it for a long time. She'd actually even uh, put some little red sticky arrows pointing to where the blood was. And there was even one on one of the closing tabs of the diaper. It was a disposable diaper. And, and it almost looked, you know, in my opinion, it looked just like a, a thumbprint uh, on one of the closing tabs. They, they never examined it. And, and then the prosecutor, months later, in, in preparation for grand jury, uh, goes over to the police department because he, he wants to see the diaper. And, and uh, so he's, he sees it firsthand. And what does he do? No, nothing. It, 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 they never examined it. And that just uh, made no sense to me. Because if they had, I'm, I'm convinced that uh, it would have been the DNA of uh, the boyfriend. So how did you get involved in the case, though? Okay. Um, so after she was arrested in September, her attorney, uh, his name was David Butler, uh, he started receiving, you know, discovery material and going through it. And after about a month of going through it, he, he, he called me. He says, I think I need your help on this one. I'd worked with him before uh, on a number of cases. Uh, so, so I started going through it myself and, and I was on the same page as he was, you know, something's wrong here. Uh, you know, this, this shouldn't have happened. Um, and, and so, you know, we did our own research and, and pointed out all of the things that were a, a, a real problem uh, for the prosecution. You know, the time of death, for example, the, the medical examiner uh, had estimated the time of death to be between three and four in the morning, which is right, right in the middle of when she was at work. So, so we're saying, you know, how are they going to, how are they going to. So he was already dead when she found him and they tried to revive him or yeah he yeah he was he was already dead. he was he was gone because his temperature had dropped like 12 degrees I and, see. and okay. that 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 body temperature that they took at the hospital was what the medical examiner used to estimate the time of death because the body cools at a, at a kind of a steady rate right uh, after death uh, until it reaches the ambient air temperature so anyway um so so we're we're looking at a time of death between three and 4 a.m. And, and there was nothing unusual about um, uh, that would cause the time of death to be modified in any way. Uh, but but they, uh, they got the medical examiner to, to, to testify that it could have happened, you know, hours earlier uh, if uh, there was uh, if the room was extremely warm or he was bundled up in uh, heavy clothing or, or things like that, but he wasn't, you know, the, in fact, the, the room where he was found was actually cold. Uh, and there, and there was testimony and, and proof to that. Because uh, the, the apartment had only a little space heater in the middle. And so the, the bedroom uh, at the opposite end of the apartment was, was rather cold. Uh, both Chucky and Veronica told the police that. Uh, so it was rather bizarre that they uh, they used the medical examiner to, to uh, agree that it could have happened earlier, uh, and the 
And the jury just kind of bought into it, even though the defense argued that there, there was no evidence to support the medical examiner's opinion that it could have happened that much earlier. So, and, and the, other, the other issue was uh, uh, the stomach contents. Uh, during the autopsy, the, the, there, there was stomach contents removed uh, in the, which should have been examined. They, they were preserved for examination, but they were never examined. In fact, the medical examiner claimed that he had tried to find somebody to do that, but couldn't, which didn't, which didn't make any sense to me. I mean, because I, I can't, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and I know that there isn't a lab that I'm aware of that, that doesn't have that capability. Uh, but they never did it. And I think if they had, uh, they would have known that uh, what Lyric ate before he died would be consistent with what the boyfriend fed him after Veronica went to work. You follow me? Right. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, so Binghamton is, you know, a small city, less yeah. than 50,000 people. It's got a university, though. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I'm guessing there aren't a lot of murders in Binghamton. Not a lot, but, you know, they've, they've had a few. I mean, uh, I've worked with some of these uh, investigators before. I, I was, you know, with the state police uh, before I started doing private work. And uh, so I know most of these. Uh, so why uh, do you think they messed up so much um, that they failed to investigate seemingly obvious things? I mean, and, and this case doesn't seem that complicated. It's probably one or the other, right? The boyfriend yeah, and his mother. It, it wasn't complicated. They, uh, it was pretty straightforward, but, I, but what they did complicated it. Um, and I don't know uh, if there was anybody involved in the investigation that uh, I, I'm pretty sure that somebody had to be thinking, you know, why are we doing this? We, we know the boyfriend did this. Why are we going after her? But it, it was probably not their decision. Um, and I believe it was probably the district attorney who, who decided to go after her for whatever reason. Um, but it was a bad decision. Um, and it was made prematurely because that, was, that decision was made uh, even before they found the bloody diaper uh, or uh, or had the stomach contents. So and uh, they never turned back. You know, they, they they just kept pursuing her. And then and then the other thing uh, I'll just mention real quickly. They had a uh, 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 it was probably about six months into the investigation. They uh, uh, they had a, a former boyfriend of Veronica who got arrested for uh, contempt. He violated an order of protection against his girlfriend, and uh, so he was in. He was going. To, he was going to jail, probably probably uh, state prison because it was like his third offense. And uh, so he was looking for a deal. So the police talked to him, and, and and initially, this is what's interesting. Initially, he tells them a story about uh, learning what happened to Lyric from Veronica, and 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 he goes over with a couple of friends to confront. Chucky about what he did. And he, he tells the police that Chucky admitted to killing Lyric. And he tells him that at least three or four times over a period of days. But, but, the, but the police, they, they don't believe him. But they don't tell him that. 
uh, right away. But, but uh, when he goes up to jail, they, they finally go up there and, and with the district attorney and three investigators. And uh, this jailhouse snitch is there with his attorney. And, and uh, uh, it's all being recorded. It's on videotape. And, and they ask him to tell the story again, which he does. He get, again, he, he points the finger at Pratt, Chucky Pratt, that, that he admitted to killing Lyric. And then they start leaning on him, telling him they don't believe him. So, so he, he knows his deal uh, is about to go out the window. And then the only way to uh, salvage it is to tell them what they want to hear. So, so he changes his story. And now he's telling them that, no, no, it was Veronica who called me. And she admitted to killing her son. And, and they used that uh, in, in the trial. And, and interestingly, uh, you know, when this was all over and, and she was convicted and sent to prison, and she was in it for a total of uh, five and a half years. Uh, but when the appellate court uh, made their ruling, that the verdict was against the weight of the evidence. Uh, they didn't stop there. They, they went on to explain why. And, and they really attacked the, uh, the, the, the authorities' evidence and, and the theory that they used, uh, and including you know, the time of death uh, and the, uh, the jailhouse snitch uh, and uh, the uh, unreliability of the uh, testimony of, of the jailhouse snitch. Uh, and then the uh, the testimony of the medical examiner who who pushed back the time of death, uh, they, they just didn't buy it. And, and they also clearly mentioned uh, and, and basically pointed the finger at Chucky Pratt because he had been granted immunity to testify against Taft. Well, what's it was kind really of a, interesting about this is that, first of all, it's almost unheard of uh, to see one of these wrongful conviction cases overturned after just five years. Not that yeah. that makes it any better. But the other thing is you almost never see them overrule it based on the weight of the evidence because um, they they tend to view that as, uh, you know, a, a, a discretion of the jury. And so it, it has to be really overwhelming for them to do that. Yeah, it, it was. It was unprecedented. In fact, I, uh, when, when I got the call from David Butler, the attorney, that the appellate court decision had come out, uh, you know, my first thought was, okay, then we, we got to retry this, right? And he said, no, it's better than that. He said they threw it out entirely uh, on the weight of the evidence. There was none. And so I, I was amazed. And, uh, you know, in all my years, I'd never heard of uh, a case like that. I've had other cases come back for retrial for some legal technicality, but this this was way beyond that. Yeah, I mean, that's really extraordinary. Uh, yeah. you know, I've never seen that before, to be honest, and I've yeah. done this for a long time. So, I, I mean, I keep coming back to this point because this whole case is so baffling. But, yeah. I, I mean, why? I, I I mean, I, I get the, you know, it's a kid that gets killed and, and it's a brutal murder, but they have the guy. They did they have the guy. The and, wrong if they, way. and if they had just you know, followed through with a bloody diaper and the stomach contents, they, they would have had uh, a lock on him. 
Have you ever talked to the prosecutor or the police to get kind of a sense for why they went this way? No, they don't want to talk to me. <laughs> they don't, I don't think they like me. <laughs> but it, it, no, it's it's not nothing I did. It's what they did, right? Or what they didn't do. Um, and then and then the then the testimony that they offered during the trial was just you know not good. Uh, you know, I just kind of rolled my eyes at times with some of the things they said. Like like Attorney Butler would, would was challenging them on uh, some of the things they didn't do, uh, and and, and the, what their answer was. Uh, well, we didn't know it was a homicide. And, and, and one of them went as far as to say, oh, or it could have been a SIDS death. <laughs> and that just made me oh, roll my eyes. I said, you know, one look at that baby and, and you know, you don't have to be an expert to, to rule out a SIDS death. And, uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the other thing about that was, uh, and they said they didn't know it was a homicide, which was ridiculous. Because their their own lead investigator testified that it would have been remiss not to treat it as a homicide, <laughs> so th they knew it was a homicide, and uh, and and they 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 took shortcuts uh, during the crime scene work. I mean, real, real elementary protocol that wasn't followed. Uh, it was bad, and and that that's why I felt compelled to to write the story. Um. So what's become of Veronica Taft? Well, after she got out of prison uh, in 2016, um, it was kind of an uphill battle to, to get her kids back. So she's back in family court. Uh, it took a year to get her two youngest kids back. Uh, and her oldest, uh, Haveen, uh, who was 15 now, or, or was when she got her back, you know, she, it took two years to get her back because she was uh, she'd been placed in a pre-adoptive home was and, that, and it was on the verge of getting adopted, uh, and she so she got her back just in the nick of time. So she did get all of her kids back, and uh, uh, she lived in uh, upstate New York for a while, and then she moved out of state. And, and the last I knew, she was uh, she's back in the in the Broome County uh, Binghamton area. Uh, I, I, I talk to her once in a while. So how can people get the book? Well, the, the book, uh, there, there's a number of ways. Um, uh, if, if they just go into their web browser and type in my name, you know, David M. Beers, or uh, the title of the book, Immunity for Murder, uh, it'll come up. And, and there's numerous uh, sales platforms uh, through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Walmart, uh, those types of things um, that are available. And it's available in uh, paperback, uh, Kindle, uh, as well as uh, audiobook. I, I, I did the uh, I, I did the audiobook myself. Uh, I, uh, I I'd written another story a, a couple of years back, and uh, uh, the 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 publisher did the audio, and I, I wasn't real happy with it. So I said, I, I can do that myself. So I did. And uh, I think it came out pretty good. Uh, I actually I actually got a, an award for uh, for my audio book. So I'm, I was pretty proud of that. But uh, and also uh, in my website uh, is just davidmbeers.com. And uh, both of my books are, are on there with some with some detail about uh, 
about both books and how to how to purchase them. Interesting story. Very. Uh, we've been talking with David Beers. Um, he wrote the book Immunity for Murder, the Veronica Taft story. Very interesting case of wrongful conviction and just kind of negligence on the part of uh, the police and prosecutors. Like I said, this is not, you know, from your description, this didn't seem like it should have been a difficult case for them to be able to figure out. No, it, it wasn't. I mean, it was clearly, I, I, I'm sure that the that the district attorney at the time, who, who he was right there that on that first day uh, in the Binghamton Police Department squad room. So he was monitoring what was going on. And I'm sure he was concerned when, when Charles Pratt uh, asked for a lawyer because anything he said thereafter that they could never use. So he, he probably thought it would be difficult prosecuting him. Uh, but if he just stayed with the investigation and followed through and, and did the diaper and the stomach contents and, uh, and, and, and documented some of the things he said while he was in that interrogation room outside the, the pre presence of the police, uh, they, they would have been able to build a pretty good case against him. And I'm assuming they never did. No, and, and like I said, instead they, they uh, he got immunity, uh, so he can never be charged with anything related to his testimony. Wow, it's pretty bizarre. Crazy story. Well, this yeah. has been Everyday Injustice. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Yeah, I'm um, glad you had me. We've been talking about the wrongful conviction of Veronica Taft. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.